The war, which broke out in 1939, struck me hard. I have never been a man of politics. I am not interested in them. I do not understand them, and even if I had been interested, I have never had the time to learn. Like most people, I am a working man. If I must stick a label on my coat, it seems to be the fashion in these days. Then I would call myself international. I see no essential difference between the men and women of the many different nationalities I have met in my lifetime. The German and the Italian are not a different species from the English, the American, or the Frenchman, or any other nationality. I had good friends in many countries. I did not want to kill my friends, and as far as I know, they had never expressed any desire to kill me. We wanted only to go on working together, buying from each other, talking and differing and agreeing with each other. Yet the world was at war. And for me, as the owner of a worldwide luxury business, employing four hundred men and women, turning out two hundred pairs of shoes a day, I was almost the only shoemaker ex exporting from Italy. It meant collapse. For a few months, as long as Italy held aloof from the conflict, my trade with England and America continued. Then Mussolini struck at France, and the trade ceased abruptly, with five thousand pairs of shoes awaiting shipment. Within weeks, I was virtually unemployed. My workmen were called to the colours until only fifty remained. Supplies of materials first dwindled, and then ceased. Laws were promulgated which prevented me working in my own way, even if I had wanted to. Designs were standardized. A shoddy fiber dressed to look like leather replaced the real thing, and I was ordered to produce shoes for the war effort. I produced shoes for the war effort as best I could, but it was mechanical work. There was nothing for the real me to do any more. No creating, no designing, no beautiful materials, no crippled feet to ease. War has no use for creation and beauty. And the crippled feet were turned towards the battlefronts of the world. Yet I saw my business collapse almost without noticing it. Certainly without caring. What did the fate of my business matter when men, women, and children were suffering and dying in their homes, and on the battlefields of the war? One morning, I realized that, for almost the first time in my life, I had nothing to do. Nobody wanted me. I was useless as a soldier. My talents were at a discount in the business I still controlled. I was forty-two years old, and I was unmarried. I felt very lonely. True, I was surrounded by my family, my old mother, my two younger sisters, whom I was still helping in the furtherance of my promise to my dying father, their husbands and children. I had always been happy in my circle. I had scarcely noticed, with my family around me and so much work to do, how the years had slipped away, and how the desire that had always been at the back of my mind—that one day I would marry and have a wife and children of my own—had been pushed aside. Now I knew, suddenly and overwhelmingly, that my life was empty of all the things. 
that really mattered. I wanted to be married. If only there was a girl in Italy to whom I could give my love and who would reciprocate it. To think with me has always been to act. And so, in the summer of 1940, I set out with the members of my family to go shopping for a wife. We began our tour in the north and then made our way in leisurely fashion down the peninsula until we came at last to Naples. Being so close to Bonito, I suggested that we drive over and have lunch in the village. It was an easy ride of one and a half to two hours, and after lunch we could return to Naples at our leisure. Our old home was now being used by my uncle priest, Father Alessandro Ferragamo, he who more than 30 years earlier had financed my first shoe shop. I had visited Bonita many times, even though all our family had left, and every time I met my uncle he had said, why don't you get married? You must have a wife and family. I had always replied jokingly, well, why don't you find me a wife? You know plenty of nice girls. From time to time he had introduced me to girls from good families or good-looking girls from more humble families, and all of them he had said privately, I can assure you she is the perfect wife for you. I had never agreed. I had always found something about them that did not satisfy me. Perhaps it was my own fault. I was always too busy to take time off from work for the courtship or of even those I liked the best, and somehow they had always slipped away. Besides, perhaps the girls themselves, seeing me surrounded by my mother and sisters and their families, had feared that they would become just another member of a large family group and not the mistress of a home. On this occasion, my uncle prepared lunch. As we were sitting down to the meal, Dr. Miletti, the mayor of Bonito, called to see me. He wanted to talk about several things, including the charities which I had sent from time to time to the poor of the village. He remonstrated with me, remarking that though some of the gifts were right, some were not. Many people, he said, took advantage of my readiness to help, while others, who really needed it, refrained. The poorest often cannot write to you because they do not know how to write, he said. In any way, they would be too proud to beg. Now, he wanted to see if we could come to an arrangement under which, if I wished to help the village, I could do so equitably. As this was likely to take a little time, with my uncle's permission, I asked Dr. Miletti to lunch. He replied with a decisive, no thank you. I said, I'm sorry, we have such a humble home here. Don't you dare dream of such a reason for my refusal, he said. He was an abrupt, decisive man with a hatred of the wasted word. In other circumstances, I would have been delighted to join you. But my wife died a few months ago, and, as you know, by the custom of the village, I cannot accept invitations while I am in mourning. The news made me sad. I had known Signora Miletti from my boyhood as the most gracious and charming of all the signore who came to buy my shoes. Her charming manner of asking me to do things for her had captured my boyish heart, and I had formed quite an attachment for her. I also remembered the comedy of the shoes she had never paid for. 
After I sailed to America, as a boy, my mother sent me a list of customers who, according to my books, still owed for shoes I had made. My mother wanted me to confirm that the list was correct. I told her that in every case except one, the customer had paid, but I had forgotten to cross them off the list. The only outstanding debt was Signora Miletti's for two pairs. It was not that she could not or would not pay, but I had been unable to see her before I left. Now I asked my mother to go to her and ask her to pay. My mother replied, You did a bad fop giving her two pairs of shoes without payment. It is hopeless for me to approach the wife of the village doctor. He is the family doctor and he would not like me to ask him to pay. So the shoes were never paid for. And when I returned to Bonito 13 years later and met the Miletis again, the debt has been forgotten. I remembered this little incident as the doctor turned to go, saying, I will not keep you from your lunch, but tonight, if you would like to call at about eight o'clock, we can discuss these various questions at my house. I abandoned my plan to return to Naples in the afternoon and accepted the invitation. At five minutes to eight, my sister Rosina and I presented ourselves at Dr. Smiletti's home, one of the largest and most prominent houses in the village. A maid admitted us into the big hall and, explaining that the doctor had been detained, asked us to go upstairs and wait. As we were walking slowly up the stairs, I heard quick footsteps behind us. A young, slim, dark girl overtook us and said to me, Good evening, I am Vanda, Dr. Mileti's daughter. I'm happy to welcome you to our home and to know you. My father will be here in a few minutes, and in the meantime, perhaps you will come upstairs and wait for him? She spoke rapidly, but almost before she had finished, I knew that. Here was the girl I was seeking. I turned to my sister and said in English, I have found the wife I'm looking for. She's going to be my wife. A few moments later, her father arrived, and during the next hour, there was enacted a small comedy. We completed our business in five minutes, but this was not good for me. I wanted to snatch every possible second with Vanda to make sure that my first impression had been accurate. Therefore, I raised question after question. Dr. Miletti was a cultured man, a physician, a surgeon, and a philosopher. But his dislike of idle conversation made chatting difficult. Every time I tried to prolong the conversation, he cut me off sharply, not because he wanted me to go, but because he could answer my questions quickly, and so no point in elaborating his replies. As he talked, I thought hard to find another question, but after half an hour invention dried up, there was only one thing left. Desperately, I brought the doctor to an argument about the human food. Briefly, he explained its functions. He knew it all. But when we had finished, I went down on my knees at Vanda's feet and persuaded her to take her shoes off so that I could demonstrate my theory of shoe fitting. Dr. Miletti said nonplussed. He did not quite like the idea of a practical demonstration on the foot of his daughter, and Vanda, who had not expected to take her shoes off in public, had one too peeping out of her stocking. She blushed with embarrassment. The colour 
added so greatly to her loveliness that I nearly blurted out my love for her there and then. Fortunately, something in my mind made me hold back. I said to myself, don't be a fool, Salvatore. Hold on to your feelings. Talk to your uncle before you precipitate matters. I demonstrated my theory. I promised to make Wanda a pair of shoes, and then a silence fell. There was nothing more to be said, and reluctantly, I departed. The house door had no sooner closed behind us and I was hurrying down the street to my uncle, outstripping my sister. I burst into the house and said, Uncle Alessandro, I have great news for you. I have found a wife. He knew at once who I meant. He said, Have you met the daughter of Dr. Miletti? I have, I said. She is the girl I want to talk to you about. He could hardly get the words out. He was so astonished. But she's only a child. No, she's not, I said. She's perfect. All I want to know from you is why in the world didn't you tell me about her before? I couldn't, he said. She has been in college all this time and has been in Bonita only since her mother died. Of course, I now know her well. She has been to confession several times and she is a wonderful girl. If you manage to win her, you will be the luckiest man on earth. But let me warn you, be careful of her father. He's terrific. If he sends anything of what you have in mind, he will be sure to think it is wrong and whisk her away. But I want to marry her, I said. I have no time to waste. If you hurry matters, he said, you'll make the mistake of your life. Then suddenly he realized the rapidity of my decision. But how do you know she's the girl you love? You've only seen her for a few minutes. That was time enough. I don't need ears to make up my mind of a girl like Vanda. Now all we need is a little more time together to learn to love each other. It really was love at first sight, Uncle. She's the girl I have been looking for. It must be love because I want to marry her. I've never wanted to marry any of the other girls. And as for being a quick decision, I always make quick decisions. Once you know what you have to do, why waste your time about it? Now, how can I go about seeing her? Be careful, he warned. Oh, you be careful. Tell me, I persisted, who is the person closest to her? Well, the only person close to her is Menica, a woman who does almost everything that has to be done in the house. She accompanies Wanda everywhere. In the morning, if you insist, I will introduce you to her. Next morning, I met Menica. She too warned me of Dr. Miletti. He will send her away the moment he gets wind of this, she said. Never mind, I replied. You take this note to Signorina Miletti. Hastily, I scribbled a note to Wanda, telling her I loved her and that nothing would stop me marrying her, if only she could love me. If she would just give me a word saying that there was a chance for me, it would be enough. I waited an hour, an hour longer than eternity, before Minica came back with a note signed by Wanda. It said simply, If that is your desire, I ask you to be careful in every move. Do not make a false move with my father. I was overjoyed. 
It was implicit that she loved me too. We stayed in Bonito, and, and thereafter I used every wild to snatch moments with her. It was difficult to see Vanda alone, for we were supposed to be always accompanied by a chaperone, but somehow I usually managed to persuade the third person to disappear. We found that we were both deeply in love. One Sunday, when we were going to church, I organized the car loads of passenger. Skillfully, I filled one car with our relatives, leaving only Vanda without a seat. I rapidly installed her in my own car, and we drove off. Instead of stopping at the church, I called out to the other car that I would drive to the top of the hill to turn the car round in the village square. In the square, I stopped the engine, and we sat together in each other's arms, enjoying the solitude. It was quite some moments before we realized that we were far from alone. A crowd of village children had gathered round the car to watch us with every enjoyment, laughing and pointing, when our relatives, perturbed because we had failed to arrive at the church, drove up the hill to seek us. They found us in the local bar, buying the children ice cream and sweets. Because I was using the trip round Italy to settle a few small business matters, I eventually had to leave Bonito and continue my trip through Italy. Now I was no longer shopping for a wife. I scanned every town and village with only one idea in my mind. Which place would be best for our honeymoon? I returned to Bonito on my way back from the south to find that Vanda's father had begun to suspect and had sent her away. I refused to be deterred. There were negotiations and talks and objections. I was so much older than she. Vanda was too young to know her mind. Besides, this marrying in a hurry was a great mistake. And so on. And so on. All the things that anxious parents say when they are faced with unexpected events involving the happiness of their children. But nothing mattered. We were in love. And we won through. Within a few weeks of my return to Bonita on November 9th, 1940, we were married at the Church of Santa Lucia in Naples by the Archbishop of Ariano, before a crowd of friends greater than I knew I possessed. We had sent out hundreds of invitations to people all over Italy. More as a formality than anything else, we expected only a few to arrive, especially as the Allies were bombing Naples almost every night at this time. They all came. At four o'clock in the afternoon, we slipped away to our honeymoon hotel at Sorrento. At that night, from our window, we saw the fireworks of war as a light planes attacked Naples. Our guests spent the night in the city's shelters. Perhaps this is the place to say that a few weeks ago we celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary with a car trip through a sunny, peaceful Italy. We went alone, leaving our five children, three girls and two boys, in the care of their governess. It was like being on our honeymoon all over again. We returned to Florence and settled down. The war dragged on. I spent most of my time with Wanda and, as they came along, with the children. For now my work was almost exclusively devoted to research into substitute materials and experiments that would eliminate the minor problem which still, when the food was exceptionally awkward, cropped up in my system of fittings. As the years passed, the conflict spread. 
Hitler attacked Russia, the Japanese struck at the United States and Britain in the Far East. Then, slowly but with gathering momentum, the tide turned against Italy. The next events were the military collapse of our resistance, the arrest of Mussolini, and the occupation of Italy as an enemy country by the Germans who had been our allies. On the morning that the Germans occupied Florence, I received a telephone call. A man's voice said, Ferragamo, I must see you at once. I knew the man, an Italian, and replied shortly, I have no reason to see you. The Germans are coming, he said, and you will be in for bad trouble unless you listen to me. I will come and see you at once. I will not see you, I said. Listen, he replied. Unless you take notice, you'll be in danger of your life. I can help you to avoid this danger if you pay out immediately ten million liras. Everything will be all right. I shan't pay you ten pennies, I said, and rang off. The Germans entered the city at nine o'clock in the morning, and our villa was the first building they occupied. Shortly after noon, I received a phone call from Wanda to say that they had arrived and that she and the children had been ordered to leave. I hurried out to Fiesole. At the villa, I was interrogated by a German officer with a gun. His face was angry, and when I tried to explain that I was the owner of the villa and a shoemaker by trade, he roared in German, You are an American. You are spying for the Americans. I spoke to him first in Italian. He had an interpreter who... I quickly realized was not giving him an accurate translation. I would say something quite innocuous, and with the translation the German's face would go dark and he would pull his gun out of its holster and balance it threateningly. I was none too happy about the situation, not knowing when he might decide to shoot, so I switched from Italian to English. His expression told me that he knew English, although he would not speak it, and soon I noticed that he was finding out that the interpreter was giving him incorrect information. After one remark had been rendered from English into German, he spoke sharply to him. After that, the interrogation became almost reasonable. What's your name? Salvatore Ferragamo, a shoemaker. I sprayed out my hands, which, as I had been at the bench that morning, bore the marks of handcraft. You are an American citizen. I am no longer an American citizen. I lost my American nationality many years ago. Look, I took out my passport. I travel on an Italian passport. How can I be an American? You could have gone to America. Why didn't you go? Because my wife and family are on business are here. The other Americans took wives and families. Everything. I don't want to go to America, I said. I want to stay in my own country. My conscience is clear. I'm not a spy. I'm only a shoemaker. Finally, he took me to his commanding officer, a one-armed man named Schubert, who, through his interpreter, said, We have information that the owner of this villa is an American spying for the enemies of the Reich. I replied in English, and from a flicker in his severe eyes, I knew that he too understood the language, though I knew he would not speak it. I am an international man, I said. 
I make shoes for America, England, Germany, France, Italy, for people all over the world. Before the war, I had a shop in Berlin. I had a shop in Berlin, in the Kurfürstendamm. His face changed, and I breathed a sigh of relief. I did not comprehend the full reason for the change, but I knew that something I had said had made him more friendly. He put his hands into a tunic pocket and took out a slip of paper. Glancing at it, he said in German, You say you are a shoemaker. I nodded. What is your name? Ferragamo. Your Christian name. Salvatore. You are Salvatore Ferragamo, the shoemaker? I nodded passionately. He looked me up and down and put the paper back in his pocket. Come into my office, he said. I followed him inside. He interrogated me for a long time, probing into the allegations that I was a spy. I said, I am harmless. I am no spy. You can put as many men to watch me as you choose. We shall, he said grimly. We shall watch you very closely indeed. And we shall commandeer the villa. But where shall we go? I asked. We have been married only a short time, and my wife has just had our second baby. Things are hard for us. I'm not allowed to make fine shoes because of the war. It suddenly occurred to me that the slip of paper might mean that he wanted shoes. I added, The good shoes that were left on my hands at the outbreak of war are in stock because I'm not allowed to sell them. He hesitated. Very well, he said. Telephone your wife from outside this building, not in here. And tell her she can stay in the villa. But remember, it remains at the disposal of the German high command. That evening, he came to the villa. I have completed my arrangements, he said, and you will be permitted to stay. However, our soldiers must live somewhere, so we have taken other houses, and those people will be billeted upon you. Next day they came, and from that time until the end of the war, we had three families living in the villa, and only one kitchen for the cooking, when we could get food to cook. After Schubert had finished telling us the fate of the villa, he added, Do you know Frau X? Yes, I said. I made shoes for her before the war. She told me, if I was in Florence, to ask you if you would send her some shoes. You can give the account to me. She wishes to pay for them. I had my doubts about that. But I was wrong. That lady, although she lost everything with the defeat of Germany, remembered her debt after the war and sent the money for the shoes. Temporarily, we were safe. But the persecution did not end there. Twice I was arrested and accused of spying. Once matters would have gone hard with me, but for the intervention of the German consul, for whose wife I had made shoes before the war. Her feet were bad when she came to me, and I had cured them, as I had cured many bad feet of all nationalities. But now everyone wanted this and that from Ferragamo. They said I was hoarding guns and ammunition in the villa, and down they would descend republics and Zorofascisti to ransack the villa.
Next, I was accused of hoarding food. And again and again, they swept down to search the house. The penalty for hoarding food was death. And the only food I had in the house was a huge parmesan cheese, weighing about 11 kilos. Foolishly, I had allowed a neighbor to persuade me to store it away at the beginning of the war. If the worst happens, you will always have a bit of cheese in the house, he had said. Oh, that cheese. I was certain it would be found. Worrying about that cheese kept me awake night after night. I dreamed more of that cheese than of any girl I have ever known in my life. It was as if it was rolling along the, the edge of a precipice and I was running after it. I didn't even know how to destroy it. It was so big. All the persecution of this period of my life by the Germans, the Republicans, the Fascisti and, and the Allied armies who came afterwards never frightened me as much as the Parmesan cheese. Meanwhile, the Allies advanced up the leg of Italy. As they came nearer and it was revealed that Florence would be regarded as an open city, I made arrangements for us to move into the Palazzo Ferroni Spini. It proved impossible. The night the Germans withdrew, they barricaded the streets along the Arno and blew up all the bridges, including the Santa Trinita, the most beautiful bridge in Florence, damaging the Palazzo Ferroni and many other buildings along the riverside. From the terrace of Il Palagio, we watched the flashes and heard the rumblings of the explosions. That night, we did not slip. The next night, we did not sleep either. During the day, the retreating German armies tramped along the road by the villa towards Maiano, using the side road to avoid being detected by Allied planes on the main road over the top of the hill. When the troops had all gone, the demolition squads arrived, intent on blowing up our villa as part of their plan to close the road to the Allies. Farmers, laborers, a professor who lived nearby, all sorts of people were forced to dig trenches outside Il Palazzo Why I pleaded with the German surgeons in charge of the work that it was stupid, useless, criminal to blow up my house or anyone else's. I pointed out that there was a much better road farther down the hill which had been left untouched. This was the road the Allies would take. He shook his head. He had no orders about that and concentrated on placing the explosive and connecting the charges. I plied him with wine and suggested that he would gain nothing by blowing up the villa. Why not blow up the road farther down where the destruction would be just as effective and would do less harm to the building? No, he would not hear of it. At three o'clock in the morning, I finally succeeded in convincing him that Il Palagio should be spared. His alternative suggestion, however, was to blow up a villa farther down the road. This was wars. Quite apart from the fact that everyone for acres around knew that the charges had been laid outside Il Palagio, I could not willfully condemn someone else's home to destruction. I plied him with yet more wine. And finally, when I was almost dropping with exhaustion, he agreed to fire the road farther along where it could damage only surrounding property. My property, but that did not matter. The villa would be safe. At nine o'clock in the morning, they blew up the road. All the windows in the villa were smashed and a couple of gates and part of, the, of some walls on the property went down. That was all. 
Next day, the Allies arrived. Although Florence was an open city, Fiesole was not included in the concession, and towards evening, the Allied guns began bombarding the hills in which German machine gun and artillery posts were strongly entrenched. Wanda and I and the children with our guests, we now totaled 51 people, for many neighbors had sought the safety of the fortress walls, cowered unhappily in the cellars, sleeping as best we could, stretched out one against the other for three days while the bombardment continued. Shells hit the wall of the villa, but fortunately they exploded harmlessly outside. The men who had built El Palagio all those centuries ago did their job well. Now and again, a shell would go through a window, smashing everything in the room, blowing down doors and destroying staircases, but the fabric of the framework stood up nobly. Then the Allies changed their tactics and fired incendiary shells. Thirty or forty hectares of land around the villa were set on fire, and we in the cellar knew that now we must leave. One incendiary on the villa, and we would all be cooked. One shell did, in fact, strike the wall of the building, but luckily it bounced off and burned harmlessly on the gravel of the terrace. It had been a close thing. Next time, we might not be so lucky. That same night, at about three in the morning, there was a lull in the firing. I took one child and Vanda the other, and our fellow victims struggling behind us, we struggled down the road towards Florence, passed through the Allied front line, and entered the city. My troubles were not yet over. Through my persecutors, the Germans had gone, and my persecutors, the fascists, had gone with them. But now it was the turn of the Allied military command and their helpers, the partisans. The Germans had accused me of being an American spy. The Allies suggested that I had been left behind as a spy for the Germans. The Fascisti had accused me of Allied sympathies because I associated to Britain and France and the United States. The Partisans accused me of collaboration with the enemy because I had made shoes for the Germans and of Fascisti sympathies because I had made shoes for Mussolini and Clarita Petacci and Mussolini's wife, Donna Rachele. The Republicans accused me of monarchist sympathies because I had made shoes for the Queen of Italy, her daughter-in-law, and members of the royal family. In my years in America, I had learned one thing about politics. From time to time, the people voted, and afterwards, there was a Democrat in the White House, or perhaps it was a Republican, and in the Senate and the House of Representatives, there was a majority of Democrats, or it might be a majority of Republicans. But it did not matter whether the rulers of the country were Democrats or Republicans, you still went on working. You did not refuse to make shoes for the Democrats when the Republicans were in power, nor for the Republicans when the Democrats held sway. I had thought that this principle was true of Italy, but apparently it was not. At least, not in the aftermath of war. Before the war, it seemed, I should have refused to sell my shoes in Germany and spurned the custom of anyone in the Italian royal family or the fascist party on the grounds that they were going to lose the war six years later. In my defense against these allegations, I asked repeatedly, 
You tell me this and this and accuse me of this and that. Please tell me, for whom shall I make the shoes now? But enough. There is little point in ranking over the dead and gone details of the hatreds of, of the passing of war across our land. I defended myself successfully because I was innocent and because I was only a shoemaker who knew nothing of politics except that the actions of the politicians had caused terrible harm to me and the world. So at last, they let me go and they seized their mutterings and in due course, the Germans capitulated and I was allowed to return to the Palazzo Ferronispini and pick up the wrecked fragments of a once fine business. There was little enough to salvage. The palace had been damaged in the blowing up of the Santa Trinita Bridge. My shops throughout Italy opened for business each day, but there were no shoes to sell. My shop at the Lido in Venice had been destroyed. There were virtually no raw materials and the stuff that could be obtained was poor. Even if it had been possible to buy top-grade leathers and the raffia, I had developed as an important part of my trade, there were no chemicals to dye them. My 50 remaining workmen were capable of producing only 25 pairs a day. And worse still, after the years of shoddy craftsmanship on poor shoes made under orders, they had small inclination to restore their minds to the standard of skill I demanded. Of my workmen who had gone to the war, many did not return, and others, though they lived, could not return because of wounds. Those who trickled back into my employ as the mobilization got underway, like those who had been spared to continue to work for me, had lost much of their old skill. There is no craftsmanship in death. There were other legacies of the war. The financial strain on the combatant nations had weakened their resources, and there were import restrictions to be overcome and internal taxation like the purchase tax in Britain, which added enormously to the price of my shoes. The leader had been devalued to about a twentieth of its previous value. The Allied military command still ruled Italy, and there was virtually no road or rail transport. Special permits had to be obtained to send merchandise even from one city to another. But slowly, so slowly it seemed at the time, I began to restore order out of chaos, partly by luck, partly by opportunism, mostly by sheer hard work. One slice of luck was the offer by a tannery near Florence, which had supplied much of my finest leather before the war, of a consignment of slow-tanned leather. They had managed to hide it during the war, and though it was far below the standard I would have expected from them before the war, I took it gratefully and gladly. The biggest stroke of opportunism was when I heard of a shipload of raffia living in Madagascar, where the world's best raffia comes from. It was the first shipload to leave the island since the end of the war, and it was carrying scores of tons. I dipped heavily into my scrinking purse and bought the entire cargo. I did not need it all, but I selected the longest strips, they are the best, and sold the remainder. More than ten years later, 
I am still using raffia I bought on that consignment. The greatest assistance in overcoming these problems was the knowledge of the goodwill of my old customers. When at last I was able to start supplying them, many traveled across the country to my salon because of the difficulties of sending their shoes to them. Overseas buyers returned with orders, requests and assistance in surmounting import restrictions. Piece by piece I took up the threads of my 1939 trade. I filled my shops with stock, shelf by shelf. By the middle of 1946, my first shipments of shoes were going for export. By the beginning of 1947, I was again exporting to all European countries and the United States. Best of all, the feet came walking into my shop in a steadily swelling stream, and I was able to resume the task I love the best, the diagnosing and fitting of the custom-made shoe.